IntelliKey Leadership Stories, the podcast for conscious leaders. We share the lessons learned from global leaders making an impact for their organizations, stakeholders, and investors. For people, community, and environment, we get inspired by their experiences, attitudes, and practices. Here are your hosts for IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Welcome back, everyone, to our podcast, IntelliKey Leadership Stories, the podcast for conscious leaders. And today, we're going to talk about conscious leadership in maybe a little bit of a conflict and crisis. Uh, it's easy to think about your soul's purpose, Kirsten, isn't it, when everything's going great and we're, you're thinking about humanity and the world, you know, good. But what about when there's communication breakdowns and interpersonal and workplace conflict? You mean when ideology and your ideas meet Earth? Yes. Like the real world. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're going to learn a lot from our guest today, Liz Kislick. Liz, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be with you, Mark and Kirsten. And Liz is going to share a lot of her experience. She's been helping clients like American Express, Orvis, the Girl Scouts, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Highlights for Children, and many more. Uh, she's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and to Forbes and others. Her book chapters have been included in a lot of different books. A lot on this issue of work conflict and interpersonal conflicts in the workplace. Liz, tell us about, I guess, Again, a leader trying to elevate the purpose of the company and be a purpose-driven company. And yet these real-world conflicts can come up. Conflict can come up, Mark, in regard to purpose, but the most frequently is in terms of the actions we take to live out our purpose and whether we see those things in the same way. Very interesting. Well said. Well said. Can you go a little deeper with that? I would love to hear more about digging into that, what that means. Sure. So um, purpose, first of all, is a concept. We can use the same language and actually mean different things. So that's the first level at which you have to check. Do you actually have agreement and congruence and understanding in the same way? Many company purposes are figured out in a conference room, apart from the rest of the world. Were you in my company? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, <laughs> no. And you know, it can sound good when you're sitting at the conference table, but then when you think about, all right, what does that mean? And what does that mean to this department, that department, the other department? And even more so, what does that mean at what one of my clients calls the desk level? So for each individual worker, what do they think their part is in that purpose? And are they signed up for it? And does the leader, the most senior leader, help to translate what that purpose means in terms of the work responsibilities and assignments and individual activities? Or does the senior leader just leave that out there conceptually and leave it for all the intermediate leaders to bring their own interpretation to it? And it's those interpretations that often are at loggerheads 
And that's particularly true if things like departmental traditions, compensation plans, um, procedures aren't lined up to all match the same higher purpose in the same way. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's a lot more than just that old telephone game where from the C-suite to the contact center, as you like to say, but somewhere along the way, all those VPs and all those departmental supervisors put their own spin on whatever that message and purpose was. But you're also talking about a lot of underpinning about this is what our department has, quote, always done. And this is who we are versus what you guys are. Yeah, it, that's so interesting, Mark, the way you said it. There's a lot of feeling about who we are and not just what we do. And sometimes those two things are aligned and sometimes they're not. And asking people to change what they do can sometimes trigger defensive feelings about who they are. And a lot of what you uh, speak to and publish is really about how to overcome these challenges. What, what are some things that you see to help us sort of, I'll call it diagnose and treat <laughs> these conflicts? The first thing is just to be aware. And that's true at whatever level you are, because you can often tell, I'm sure you've had this experience, you call somebody, they pick up the phone, and you know right away something is not right with them. You can hear it in their voice. And um, certainly in person, if you knew how to look, you could see when someone either disagreed or was resisting or wasn't sharing their opinion. Those things are noticeable if you pay attention. And even on video, I mean, thank goodness for video in the last couple of years, it's not as good. And it's really confusing when there's that little delay between the speech and the visual, but you can tell a lot if you pay attention. And so right away, you can have some sense, this is easy, or there's something going on here. And then looking for what it is and asking questions and checking, first of all, is everybody okay? Mm -hmm. And then, so what happens? I mean, I'm going to take this a little bit away from the desk, but put it back to the boardroom for a second, right? Because chaos starts there, right? There's conflicting agendas. Everybody, there's a dependent upon what you're representing and by holding that seat. And, you know, to your point, purpose can have many meanings. We might all agree we want to make profits and we want to do good, but really at the end of the day, it's about what's in it for the stakeholder in that moment, how do you begin to truly bridge those dialogues? Because those boardrooms are heated sometimes, right? They're not always on the same page. Yeah, no, that's very well said. Often, there needs to be somebody either inside the group that's making the decisions and feeling that heated way, or it can be an outsider. I'm often in this role who facilitates some of the discussions and can actually ask in a more neutral and dispassionate way, we'll talk a little more about what you mean by that. When you use the term, and I'm gonna use one that you wouldn't think there would be any heat on. When you use the term business model, what do you mean by that? You'd be amazed at the different things that people mean by something that sounds so neutral and clinical, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people mean 
the way we sell our stuff. Other people mean the business we're in. Some people mean what makes us profitable. I mean, it's really all over the field. And because these things are standard business terms, we often don't question them. So having a neutral party or sometimes just having a new executive who can ask a lot of, I'm going to call them innocent questions, please explain, please explain. You hear people actually discuss what they mean and you find out where differences are sort of pre-existing that nobody even realized before. And I was curious as we were looking at your client list that I shared at the introduction, you know, so I'll just pick a couple, American Express and the Girl Scouts uh, that you've had a chance to consult with, you know, without uh, breaching any confidentiality, uh, certainly. But I'd love to hear some compare and contrast. You would think this kind of nonprofit purpose-driven, we're doing good for the girls and the world, you know, versus maybe American Express, but maybe I'm, I'm overthinking it. Are there more similarities than differences? So in the first place, I consult on a bunch of stuff besides conflict. Yes, of course. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. You know, it's not all Sturm und Drang. Um, one of the things about nonprofits is that people really are committed to their beliefs about what the nonprofit's doing. Mm. So when other people's behavior doesn't seem to comport with that, you can get hotter fire <laughs> than in even a corporation because people feel their values are being violated. So sometimes um, nonprofits, or I do a lot of work in privately held and family owned businesses, it can get particularly hot because their lives are dedicated to this. And it's not just for them in any way, just the way we make money. Mm -hmm. It's also, what do we mean to be doing? So that kind of thing comes up all the time. But the other thing, Mark, is we are all just very human. And we're all, although we deal with it well on the surface or professionally, or we hide it, we're all afraid of pain and loss. And when there are disagreements, all of us in some way notice the pain and loss even more than we notice that there could be an upside by coming to agreement. And the thought that we might lose our position in the argument, that can be the kind of thing that's very hurtful to people if they have not thought about why it's okay to disagree and that there are ways to bridge the gaps and that we can all be better off for it. And it doesn't have to be an existential loss and it doesn't have to mean a loss of status, which some people are very afraid of, or even a loss of job if you have enough disagreements too frequently, too deeply, you know, that kind of thing. And because you're deep into this uh, leadership and following the case studies, you know, we've seen far too often lately, anyway, the news comes out, a CEO says, here, I'll deal with the personal conflict, do what I say, you know, follow me all the way from the bullying to sadly harassment. What is it from the top that we leaders need to learn about how we communicate and how we truly lead the people? I mean, maintaining what they think is power, 
but uh, doing it in a conscious way. You know, this sounds almost silly. Once people get used to being leaders, they often forget that it's not about them anymore. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I feel like we need to like stop and repeat. <laughs> yeah. Let it sink in, like go into the body on that one. <laughs> I was talking to a client earlier today who is dealing with some warring factions. And I said to him, make an opening statement and make it clear that the preservation of the institution comes first. And I'm not saying that, um, that the institution should be protected if there is some terrible thing happening. You know, we hold that aside. I'm saying that individual choices, preferences, opinions are all important to the discussion. But at the end of the day, you don't make senior level decisions just based on who's going to be happy or unhappy. You do it based on what is good for the organization as a whole. And then you look for ways within that decision to preserve each person as much as possible, given what their role is. But that if you lose sight of the big picture and you only think about who's fighting with whom, you have no larger, I'll go back to your word purpose to tie the specific actions and decisions to and being able to say wait wait let's go back to what's our mission what's our vision what are our values because theoretically there should be a lot of agreement about that particularly if you're dealing with long-standing employees there should be a lot of agreement and remembering that you have a lot of agreement and that there are things you really hold in common and care about in common can be very helpful to remind people that we disagree, but we don't hate each other. And we disagree, but we are disagreeing about hows and whats and not so much about why. Now, what would you say are the necessary attributes of leaders and then ultimately that trickle down to the employee base to be able to facilitate and cultivate this? It's a culture to be able to operate within that effectively. The first one I would say is curiosity. I'm so keen on curiosity because if you don't have that, it's often very difficult to even recognize that there's another point of view happening in the room. But if you actually want to know, then you can follow that with the patience and the openness to hear it out and to consider it seriously on its merits instead of just shutting it down because you don't really care because you want the thing you want and you're moving forward. And what's wrong with these people anyway? But if you're curious and if you are open and then you have I'm gonna call it a practice of meeting other human beings with compassion, with the assumption that they have value that they can bring to the table. It's often a lot easier to hear what's going on and find ways to reconcile. Mm -hmm. 
And as, as you're talking about this, I'm just even looking at my own leadership style, right? And of course, there's been a lot of mistakes along the way, right? Just a lot of growing up. And, but what I'm also learning myself is oftentimes when I get heated because people aren't doing it the way I know it needs to be done. It's not even that I think, like I have an absoluteness to me, like a rigidness. If I don't go internally to hear the other opinions and go beyond my initial block, I really am not capable of seeing the higher vision because there are ideas. I, you know, why am I really so committed to not hearing that? Right. So how often do you find these leaders really, because you get challenged by other people's ideas, right? It, it actually pushes me higher, but right. it requires me to look deep within myself. Exactly right. Oftentimes I ask people to check their bodies because their bodies know when they are responding to fear and threat even more quickly than their minds and their mouths do, you know? <laughs> um, so the idea of where do you feel it? Is it in your throat? Is it in your chest? Is it in your gut? Those kinds of things. And then using the body again to stabilize so you can pay attention. And there are loads of techniques for doing that. I mean, one of the easiest ones and the least visible is just to tell people to feel their feet in their shoes. And you can ground yourself, whether you're sitting or standing. And if you're really tense, you know, I tell them to count their toes. Lots of there are so many things you can do um, to ground yourself to be steady enough that you can actually expel a full breath. So many of us catch ourselves up in our chests and then take a full breath. There's always, unless there's blood or fire, there is always time to think. But we often react off the cuff the way we have before because we're triggered by something. So going back to the body is one of the best ways to slow that down and then be open to reconsideration. It's so interesting. You mentioned the blood and fire. Our last episode, we interviewed uh, a couple of business people, but also they are dealing a lot in NGOs, dealing with blood and fire. I mean, you know, the, yes. the crisis decision-making and it's exactly what you said. It's like, well, we still have to think. Uh, because if we make the wrong decision now, you know, that has bigger implications uh, for the earthquake and the uh, you know, right. typhoon victims. Well, exactly. I, Liz, we want to talk more about your work and your purpose driven. But first, I think we ought to remind the listeners that uh, all these things that you're sharing, you've put together in a nice publication that, that you have as an ebook, uh, Workplace Wisdom, How to Resolve Interpersonal Conflicts in the Workplace. How can we find this book? So that's on my website. And also, there's 10 years of weekly writing <laughs> about everything from the kinds of things we're talking about now and in more detail to the other kinds of business issues, business concerns, employee concerns that end up creating conflict and how you can deal with some of those. Because as much as you may be able to manage yourself, to calm yourself, to take a new view, or encourage others and listen to them carefully. If there are real structural impediments, 
even our better behavior doesn't necessarily fix the situation. Mm. Well, we'll put that link in the show notes, but it's lizkislik.com. Well, Liz, as we think about your own work, you've had these great publications, you've been featured in uh, Harvard Business Review and Forbes. And I think Kirsten and I are often interested in the rigor and the research, you know, we, we're really elevating this discussion now from the coffee shop or the bar stool of saying, hey, you know what you ought to do at work, the, to publish in these journals, what kind of expectation of, you know, research or rigor or experience do these publications have for your work? They don't just publish anybody. So it, it varies and it, it depends on the kind of piece you're doing also. For example, for Forbes, I often interview authors or uh, experts and in effect, their work stands as the research mm-hmm. in that kind of sense. And for Harvard Business Review, yeah, you have to back up the things you're talking about which can be done in many kinds of ways. There are all kinds of things from studies that you can refer to, to lived experience, real client situations, anonymized, of course. Um, But it's often very useful to be able to talk in practical terms about the things that go wrong in real companies and how they can be fixed. Mm-hmm. So that people then see they have more choices than just the things they've been able to think of themselves. And what are the implications of that, do you feel, for leaders trying to navigate their way through these difficult times? In other words, they need to interview and listen. They need to think about the experience and the data, not just whatever you know comes off the sleeve at the moment. Yeah. One of the things about being a leader is you get used to the idea that you'll speak and things will happen. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to laugh. It's true. <laughs> and, so good. Right? And, and you Are kind we not of, talking about my kitchen table right now? <laughs> not too much. The, the five kids sitting around? Oh, no. Oh, I, I spoke. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is, that's true at work also. Mm-hmm your kids are less worried that you're going to throw them out than one's employees might be worried that you might not give them the good opportunity, not give them the raise, eventually fire them. I'm assuming that about you, Mark. So (laughs) you can interview them later. (laughs) Okay. So when leaders assume people are just going to hop to they can forget to self-question. So one of the ways of making sure that you have a discipline of self-questioning is reading current literature on the subjects that are important to your business. That should be so obvious, but people are so busy, they often don't. Or listening to podcasts, the news, et cetera. But then also in discussion, with colleagues, subordinates, et cetera, to say, this is what I'm thinking about a subject, but I know I don't have all the answers. So please share with me what you're seeing because that will help inform my answers. And then as they get more sophisticated, I really encourage leaders just to ask questions and not to take positions themselves until they have learned what is in the room, 
or what's in the organization and what are the beliefs of people and what are their real experiences and to incorporate that into the leader's thinking from the start. So good. Kirsten, what is this bringing to mind for you in terms of guiding the young leaders coming up that you consult that says, you know, I, I don't have as many experiences to draw upon and no, I don't have time to read the Wall Street Journal or the Harvard Business Review every day. But what, what does this bring to mind for these young leaders? You know, it's fascinating. The, um, I, I feel as the older leaders, you know, uh, I work with a lot of women who are transitioning, you know, 50 plus in just into a different way of being, right? But these younger leaders, it's almost like you have to, um, the finesse, right? They're missing because they're so excited about their ideas, their opinions and innovating and revolutionizing and how to tame them so they can be not tame is the wrong word, but how to help them be heard within an organization that is trained to not listen to the younger ones, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you, it's really for them is teaching them how to effectively communicate across the bow get heard for innovative change to occur and then also how to how to work with their their management to listen down if you will right so that's really what i see the youth is so excited about all the ideas they have they know everything right and in some cases they really do <laughs> <laughs> they have the new ideas that will radicalize the shift right but how do you get heard i think is the larger challenge for all of them because they're all kind of in the middle swell and Liz, what have you been seeing in that area? I agree with all of that. I think right now, unfortunately, and particularly given the pandemic and that there are numerous young people who have never actually met their colleagues, mm. which just puts another layer of challenge on that. The idea of how to respect each other there's often tension between the generations. Older generations are fearful of being pushed aside and of not being respected for walking 12 miles to school in the snow and the crazy old ways we used to do things. And maybe we haven't quite caught on to all the new ways yet. And younger people feel like what's going on here? Of course, this new way is better. It's what works for me. Mm -hmm. So helping people hear how they sound to others is very valuable. Sometimes playing back to them, gee, what do you think that would sound like if you thought you had the right way and you'd been doing it for 20 years? What would that feel like? Pretend for me. And get them to think about what that feels like from the other person's perspective. The other thing, though, young people... I like to use the metaphor of the cheat codes in video games. So they are used to your character falls off a parapet. You go back to the beginning. Something goes wrong. You go back to the beginning. The character is intact the whole time. They don't get yelled at. They don't get hurt. They might die in the game, but there they are whole. And they know more this time. Finding ways to create that kind of environment where younger people can practice things and where older people actually explain to them, here's the way we do it. 
Here's why we do it. Tell me how that sounds to you or tell me what seems strange about that. Asking new people actually of any age. So what seems strange to you about the way we do it here is such an evocative question because it acknowledges that it might be strange. And so it really opens the opportunity for a candid discussion that doesn't have to be about critique. It can just be about noticing. Younger people are used to being listened to. They are used to having clout in their own realms. And so when they come into an environment where they're not attended to at all, they will push back. Sometimes they don't have the seasoning to know that gentle pushback works better mm -hmm. or how to be tactful in this situation. Mm -hmm. Right. I was just thinking, I have this beautiful client and he won't mind me telling the story because we still laugh about it. And he's been with me for about eight years and he's a top performer, but that top performance has given him some, you know, just confused authority. Right. What that, you know, with it. Permission authority. to speak your mind, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so he, you know, there was did not like that his manager spoke in a sales meeting and he didn't when it was his client. Yes. And he proceeded to tell his manager that she was not Beyonce. He was, and she was the side act. And I, I, I truly, that was a learning moment. I laughed so hard. I'm like, you really didn't do that, did you? <laughs> like, and I just had to stop. And we laugh at it today. Like he, he gets the enormity of that, right? His point was valid. It was the, the how. And I just, I had to bring that because that story still makes me laugh. <laughs> just oh, that. It's so good. Liz, <laughs> we've enjoyed our time together so much. It's good to end on a laughing note. Like even, even though we've been talking about some hairy and thorny and difficult subjects, it's uh, good to sort of take a step back and realize that we don't need to take it all too serious, but uh, <laughs> learning from all of these experiences too. So thanks for your time. We appreciate you sharing your experiences and insights with us. It's been a real pleasure. And folks, uh, do go by her website, Liz Kislik, K-I-S-L-I-K.com. Liz is a management consultant and executive coach, TEDx speaker. You'll love watching her TEDx talk on this topic of why there's so much conflict at work and what to do about it. It's just so fun to watch that. Well, Liz, thanks again for coming on. And listeners, come back again for our next episode where we'll continue to explore this idea of conscious leadership and how we can do better, not just in the good times, but also every now and then when there's crises and conflicts, we need to stand up and raise up and improve our leadership skills as well. And that's what IntelliKey is all about. So until next time, for Kirsten Gouldy, I'm Mark Stenson for IntelliKey Leadership Stories. See you then. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, pureintelliKey.com. I'm Jared Kajak. Join us again for our next episode of IntelliKey Leadership Stories. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host two other podcasts you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity and Five Minutes of Peace. Subscribe today and leave a review on your favorite podcast player.